Hello everybody, I am Lucia Matuonto and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books, and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. Today we are heading to Massachusetts to chat with Michael Clark. Michael is a self-employed salesman embarking on a journey to transition into full-time writing. He has authored multiple books and his latest release is titled Hell on High. Oi, Michael, to the bang. I mean, how are you today? <laughs> Tudo bom? Obrigado. Uh, yeah, I speak a little bit of Portuguese. My wife is is uh, Brazilian, like you. And um, although I'm rusty right now, I, I, need, I can speak a little bit like a baby. We spoke a little bit before, and I have to tell you that your Portuguese is really great. Oh, obrigado. Michael, with your wife being Brazilian and your latest novel taking place in Brazil, what aspects of the country resonate with you the most? As someone who was born there, I always find it fascinating to hear diverse perspectives. So please share what you enjoy the most about Brazil and its culture. Well, I you have to say the people. I mean, you're I'm looking at you, you're smiling. Uh, you know, they're known for parties, which is kind of a stereotype in Brazil, but but the people are so friendly and 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 um mundial, you know, worldwide. They love to travel. You go, I've been on many trips and you always find a brazilian there we we josie and i my wife uh we just went to to iceland in april and uh we were on top of a waterfall and there was a brazilian woman holding on the brazilian flag taking pictures in front of the waterfall so it's like you know you always find one and they're they're loving life you know they're they're out there they're, to have fun and then um aside from the people and uh, I mean, I have to mention the food. Uh, I miss the food when I when I go to Brazil. I can't wait to eat the food again. I love my coxinhas. I love my pastéis. I love everything. <laughs> my muqueca, my churrascaria. I I need it all, and I gain a lot of weight when I go back. <laughs> I absolutely agree with you. People are super super nice in Brazil. Yeah, have these energy good energy and also as you said brazilian cuisine is one of the best and yes. i don't go to brazil for more than 10 years but i miss it so much maybe this year i can visit to go back there to visit well you can go to portugal like like bacalhau like you know if you're in spain but you must sneak over to portugal once in a while and Yes, bacalhau, yeah. codfish, is one of my favorites. Yeah. You've been to Brazil many times. Do you have a, a, let's say, favorite place? As a tourist, you know, like I've been more than 20 times now. So as far as first impressions go, you it's hard to beat Rio. I mean, the landscape alone is just unbelievable in Rio de Janeiro. There's 
there are just the cliffs and hills and and then uh, you know a big Jesus on the mountain and then there's sugar loaf down below and the city lights up at night and you know it's unique i've never seen anything like it there's not you can't compare rio to any other town or city i mean uh you know uh, as far as the landscape uh, it looks like almost like another planet um but uh so it's beautiful that way we often go to a little beach town called guadapari it's in um, espirito santo and um that has become kind of a second home to me though like i there's a little beach there um what uh, i'm gonna blank right now but um uh Petacanga. and it's just it's got the the bahacas the the food huts you know right there on the beach you can have beer and coxinhas whatever you want you're sitting on the beach i wish we had that more of that kind of thing here uh and or, or any country too i mean not a lot of places have like a full service kitchen on the beach and then come out and serve you uh, you know beer colder than you've than they serve here in the united states it's just it's a match made in heaven. <laughs> I know I'm breaking your heart, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm heartbroken now. And I have to yeah. tell being born and raised in Rio de Janeiro, it's pretty much mandatory for me to declare it as the most stunning city in Brazil. I might be a bit biased, but hey, who? can resist those breathtaking coxinhas de galinha. Can you explain to our listeners what coxinha de galinha is, please? It's hard to explain. Picture, um, they come in different sizes, but picture like a, a, a teardrop. It's a teardrop shape. Coxinha means thigh, like a chicken thigh. But it's not a chicken thigh. It's just shaped like one. And what it is, is kind of like a, like a, a a batter it's not even that's not doing it justice but is it a, yeah okay so it's like dipped in a in a wash but it's like it's like shredded chicken and uh sometimes the the catupiry cheese which is we don't have that here either it's uh, the closest thing you'd say is cream cheese but it's that doesn't do it justice so you picture like a, a chicken shredded chicken with that's seasoned with this delicious creamy cheese and then it's wrapped in a in a kind of a dough or a batter and then fried and they can be as big as uh, a golf ball or they can be as big as a, a baseball <laughs> and uh oh if you can find a place that serves coxinhas uh it's just grab one it's so good it's, it's my good. favorite and they put a lot of weight on me <laughs> <laughs> I find it in some cities in the U.S., for example, in Miami and Orlando. When you have many Brazilians there, you can find uh, supermarkets that sell uh, Brazilian yep. food. I found a food truck in in a Hawaii one time that was just a like a you know a food truck, and they had they had. Uh, the most delicious fresh coxinhas and they had uh you know hearts of palm the palmito inside mm -hmm. which i've never seen before but yeah you're right if you look hard enough you could probably find it especially if you live in a city yes just to finalize what i feel is it's like mother nature went on a vacation and decided to create her masterpiece right 
in Rio de Janeiro. Yes, and and uh, I've been to like Sao Paulo, and it's which is you know unbelievable in its own way. Like if you want to go to, you could find any kind of restaurant in the world there. There's I don't know how it's over 10 million people. It's bigger than New York City. It's bigger, but it doesn't have that landscape that Rio does. You know, people people jump off cliffs on those um, Asa Delta, the uh, hang gliders, and uh, it's just it's crazy how beautiful Rio is. So I would start in in uh, Rio if I were a uh, a tourist. I'm about to buy my tickets after talking with you. <laughs> yeah, I, and I, I'm starting to mark my calendar for August when we we go visit uh, her family again because uh -huh. uh, it's I'm getting hungry. <laughs> and Michael, how did you decide to venture into writing horror novels at the age of 52? And what motivated you to explore this genre? Well, I grew up reading Stephen King. Like I used to get, he'd come out with a, approximately one book a year and I got that book every year for Christmas. And um, and then I even got to meet him one time when I was 17 at a at a book signing uh, nearby. So I was, you know, he's a great writer. He, he, his stories are, um, you know, just, they're, they're not stuck in one little subgenre either. It could be Firestarter. It could be about a haunted car. It could be, you know, The Shining in a haunted hotel. He, he kind of covered all the bases. So um, he was my number one and probably only um, influence. And I love scary movies too. Like the way I look at it is if it's um, like my wife doesn't like scary movies, so I have to watch them by myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the way I heard um, a saying, um, fear minus death equals fun. So if you can watch something and you feel that emotion and you know you're not going to die, then it should be fun kind of a thing. It's like, and it's hard to get, it's hard to do. It's hard to, to be scared. Um, I don't know, as a, you know, you grow up maybe as a little kid, uh, you, you, those things scare you. Although I, I, like you said, you're, you're afraid. My wife is afraid still. I look at it as like, oh, that looks fake or whatever. So I, I'm watching all these movies and I'm like, becoming jaded right I, i found myself becoming jaded and complaining and i didn't i didn't like to hear that from my own mouth that uh, oh i didn't like that movie oh i didn't like that movie and even one day uh my my nephew brazilian nephew he said why don't you like anything <laughs> and i was like oh i'm that guy i'm the grumpy old man now you know and i decided like well i better put my money where my mouth is and you know it's rather than complain Write what you want to hear, see, whatever, you know, maybe it'll become a movie someday. So I sat down and I thought of the st scariest thing I could and um, found out it was kind of fun to do to to organize a million thoughts and and uh, put them all together and in, into something that is cohesive. It's not easy, but it was fun. You know, it was like when you're, when you're done, you have something to put on the bookshelf that you did. And, and it's kind of like just an accomplishment. Mm -hmm. So my first book was called the patience of a dead man. And I turned it into a trilogy and I'll hold it up for you. I know this is a podcast, but it's a big thick book because it's three books. It weighs three pounds. It's only like 800 pages. Oh, wow. And um, so three books in one. 
Yeah, I mean, I you can buy them separately too, but um, it's also available in this complete version. And then I sat down after that to that that took I don't know three four years and to write a, a standalone book because there's there are things about writing a trilogy that are not uh you know like not as not so many people finish a trilogy you know like way more book one are sold than book three so and and Stephen King never really came out with too many like series I know he had the Dark Tower and and uh, you know a couple, a couple maybe the Green Mile was like a uh, put out in little chapter books when it first came out. But he wrote mostly standalone stories and they're all different. And for Hell on High, um, this one is about, you know, it's a total change of scenery. scenery. This one is from, you know, Patience of a Dead Man is from New England. And this one, I decided, uh, I was talking to my cousin-in-law, who's Brazilian, and she was talking about Macumba and how... The northeast of Brazil has, they had some crazy things going on there. And I looked up a couple of them, you know, uh, I don't know if, you know, the people in the northern Brazil uh, are more, you know, they compared to the city folk, the city folk make fun of them, just like in anywhere. And they, they're like, yeah, they're crazy out there in the country. So I looked up a few of the things. And uh, Macumba, I, to be fair to people that practice Macumba is not, it's not pure black magic. You know, I don't want to offend anybody. And I, I even wrote a little forward in my book about, you know, why did I pick Brazil? I'm not Brazilian. I'm a, I'm a white man from United States. Um, but I do know a lot about Brazil and I've seen Macumba in practice in, in Brazil. Like I have, you probably have too. Uh, you ever like drive by a crossroads and you see like a, a little despacho left yeah. there. When you know, I was some... a kid, I used to see it, but we've never had uh, like contact, direct contact. And But can you explain to our listeners a little bit about Macumba? What does it mean? Yeah. Well, I don't, it's, it's kind of like an umbrella term for three or four religions. And one of them is even like, I know I have a friend, it's, Josie, my wife's friend, uh, who lives here in the United States, she practices Umbanda, which is one of the three, and it's considered white magic, according to her. It's like you know, you 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 do these little rituals for for positive things, but there are also darker factions of Macumba, like Candomblé and Kimbanda. And you know, I'm a horror writer, so I was I'm looking for. I could have written about voodoo, you know, voodoo is, is here in the United States and uh, it may have like Afro origins, but I don't know much about New Orleans or voodoo. And I've seen Macumba in Brazil. I've seen uh, a New Year's Eve when people go to the beach, you know, it's, it's hot on New Year's down there. I know that's hard to picture for people from the United States, but New Year's is not a ball dropping in New York city. It's, it's everybody goes to the beach and it's summertime and uh, they wait till midnight and fireworks go off. But another thing they do is they uh, you'll see people that practice Macumba throw white flowers into the ocean to Yimanja, the goddess of the sea. And yes, that's Macumba and, too. And we all dress in white. Exactly. I had to do that too. <laughs> Josie made me dress in white. I'm like, why am I dressing in white? But it makes sense. And, and it's cool. Everybody's dressed in white. And... Uh, so anyway, uh, I'm getting off track, but we were talking about Macumba and, uh, you know, that it, it 
for all t- intents and purposes in my book, it's it's black magic. Yeah, I'm looking forward to know about Hell on High. Well, the story takes place in uh, 1970 Brazil, and um, Doctor Zé is you know he's a he's a unsavory character. He's he's the bad guy, and he has a a um, a new wife uh, named Aparecida. And she's his partner in crime. And the two children in the house are Juliana and Vilma, as I mentioned. And But their mother went missing. And you can imagine what happened there. So then um, we also learned that Dr. Zeh is his name. He has a, a like a like a, a sixth sense, like a he'll see he'll have visions and he'll he'll uh, see the future. He doesn't know what it means all the time, but. He's also afraid that Juliana, who is 19, is going to acquire this power because she's his daughter. She's coming of age. And uh, obviously, he has a lot to hide. The family also practices Macumba. And Juliana, she practices the good stuff, doesn't know that her father practices the bad stuff. And one night, she has her friend Fernanda over. Uh, to do homework and stay overnight, have dinner. And Fernanda, who has to use the the restroom, walks down the hallway and walks into the wrong room and sees uh, a parasita doing laundry. And when she does, she sees macumba beads, the bad ones, the red and black ones, the porcelain ones that can only mean bad. And she's afraid, and a parasita, you know, isn't happy that she barged in doesn't say anything you know they both pretend that she didn't see the beads and then the next day after all is said and done uh fernanda goes missing and juliana doesn't know what happened but she quickly finds out you know she finds a couple of clues and realizes she's got to leave as soon as possible get out of the country even and um she embarks on a journey to the United States. Her grandmother tells her to to get out, go somewhere where you're not going to be in trouble. Your father is, you know, probably a, you know a, a big. Uh, he's got a lot of power, so she goes, but she has to leave her sister Vilma behind, and she realizes that she starts working to save to get Vilma uh, back, and along the way, she she realizes because. You know, she had to cross 11 borders from Brazil to United States. And that's, I mean, that, a lot of people do that in real life. So a good chunk of this book is is about immigration and real life things that happen every day. It's happening right now. There's a jungle on the border of Colombia and Panama that just kills people left and right. And there's, a, there's even a, uh, it's called the Darien Gap. And there's even a, like a guerrilla army that lives in the jungle, you know, trafficking guns and drugs. And not only are there, you know, bugs and jaguars and, and floods and, you know, all kinds of things trying to kill you. There's also a guerrilla army that you've got to get past. And this is real life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, anyway, I'll, a little bit of a spoiler, but she makes it to America along the way. She realized that she's really good at hiking. And uh, she meets uh, a guy named Patrick, who is a climber. She's climbing on her weekends, you know, after she cleans houses all day, trying to save 
for her sister's rescue. And he has connections. This guy, Patrick, has connections. And I'll end in a second here, just so this is you don't hear the whole story. But the connections that Patrick has um, is like a big corporate guy. And uh, he wants... He he wants to see his corporate logo flown on the top of Mount Everest. And Juliana, he sees her talent. He sees that she could be the one to do that. And if she does, it would be a nice big payday. She could save her sister sooner. But Mount Everest is no joke. And I go into great detail about um, how dangerous it is to climb Mount Everest. And um, if she dies... Her sister will probably, you know, die as well. And I should also mention that this is how I got the title, Hell on High. Yeah, because so. it's hell up there. And um, this is what sparked me to write this book was the dead bodies that are left on Mount Everest. Like, there's there are 300 dead bodies up there because it's so difficult to get them down off the mountain that... Uh, it, it, I, I heard a recent documentary, like I watched one on, um, I, I think it might have been uh, Disney or, or Hulu, I can't remember. Uh, I think it's called Finding Michael. And it costs forty to to $80,000 to bring a dead body down off of the mountain. I mean, people are exhausted when they're up there. They have no energy. They, they can't get themselves down, never mind dragging a, you know, 150, 200 pound person or body you know so if you're in trouble on everest you're probably going to die up there and you're probably going to stay up there mm -hmm. and there were over the years there was there were uh several bodies that became landmarks as other climbers year after year would attempt to summit like there was a guy named green boots and he laid there for 10 years like the body went missing recently i think now they don't know if the uh the Chinese government, um, you know, they just throw them down a, a crevice or something or throw them off the side of the mountain. But you got to chip them off the off the mountain, too. They become part of the mountain, frozen to the mountain. That scared me. So that's why I wrote the book. And then I <laughs> I call it adventure horror uh, because this book is a heck of an adventure. It starts in Brazil, it goes to the United States, and then it ends on, you know, it also goes to the, the top of Mount Everest. And how did you research for this book? I've always, always been fascinated with Mount Everest. I, on my bookshelf over there, I have like one of those big coffee table books about about Everest. Um, Into Thin Air, the book Into Thin Air, and the movie Into Thin Air, which is a like a, a true life account of uh, 1996. There was like a storm that came in and killed a bunch of people on the mountain, and and um, one of the guys uh was he died on the phone to his wife who was home pregnant you know he was he she could they were talking on the phone and while he died it just that kind of thing really you know i chills me to the bone is a is a cliche and a and a bad pun but it really does and then another thing too is like in 1999 they found the remains of um george mallory who went missing on the on the mountain in 1924 they found his body and it was remarkably well you know preserved um they could read the tag on his on his shirt that said g mallory or whatever um 
but they thought that he might have been the first person to summit Mount Everest. And uh, but they'll never know unless they find his partner's camera. And his partner hasn't been found since 1924. So it's just that kind of thing. It's just it's eerie to me. And uh, I, I had to write something about it. Yes, congratulations. Actually, I'm curious. Uh, thank you. Is Juliana inspired by a real person? Yes. Uh, you know, Josie, my wife, uh, for sure. She's, uh, you know, she's adventurous and um, she's smart and, and uh, you know, she's all you and, and maybe a little vengeful at times, you know. Uh, all the things you want in a in a heroine for your for your story. Mm -hmm. I knew I had this feeling that <laughs> was was an inspiration behind Juliana. As an author, what advice would you give to aspiring writers? Well, I've learned that not everybody approaches it the same way. You don't have to do it the way I do it, and and. There's two kinds of writers. One is a, they call it a, a pantser, which means like you fly by the seat of your pants and you just sit down and you start writing. <laughs> I don't know how people do that. I mean, I kind of, I'm afraid I'm going to get on a tangent and then, you know, paint myself into a corner. I'll, I'll reach a dead end and I don't know how to finish the book. So what I do is um, I make like a, like a spreadsheet that I can sort like, that, like a database almost. And it, I'll give them a plug. It's airtable.com. It's like this sortable database uh, thing that I can get in there, change, delete, you know, reorder things. And I'll spend a couple months, if well, whatever, however long it takes, trying to get the, you know, my beginning, middle and an end. And then when that is it's never complete. It's never a hundred percent complete, but it reaches a point where I can't organize and sort anymore. And I have to start writing. And then you find the, all the mistakes in your outline too, you know, but, but at least you have an idea and that's what I do. So there's pantsers. I, and I forget um, planners, I guess um, one is an architect and one is a gardener. Somebody just, you know, the pantser is the one that plants a seed and lets it grow. And then the, the planner is the architect that needs to see the blueprints before, you know, before they start writing. So choose your path and go with it. Yeah, thank you for your tip. Usually I I, I need the characters. Sometimes I don't have this story. Usually I paint the characters, I draw them, or sometimes I paint, and then I can develop this story. I need to have the characters first. But of course, as you said, we need to choose what is easier. For that's us. a really good point that you brought that up because that's what I need to work on mostly. Like I I do know my characters, but I definitely am more like, I, I didn't even know, like, you know, I started late. I started at 52. I'm 57 now. I didn't know what character driven meant and then plot driven. You know, I like, I'm like character driven, you know, like, and then I realized that I've seen a hundred movies where, you know, it doesn't really have a clear ending, you know, or maybe like the, the Mad Men TV show. It was just like a series of vignettes, you know, like little scenes and there's no real, like, well, where's this going? You know, I, and, uh, but 
you really do have to have characters that are three-dimensional. Um, and I try to choose, like like you said, with, uh, you know, who is Juliana? Well, okay, it's Josie. It helps to have a 3D model of your character so that you can know who they are and what they would do, you know? So I, I totally agree. Um, you and I approach from different angles, um, and I feel like I need to work on what you're good at already you know what i mean more than the plot thing you know so yeah see we're all different yes we can always learn with each other this is the beauty yes absolutely and michael where can our audience find your books find you and of course stay updated on your future releases and events i would say probably my my website which is michaelclarkbooks.com uh, Clark is spelled C-L-A-R-K. So michaelclarkbooks.com. I'm on Amazon. With Hell on High, I'm in more places because I went through a publisher. Um, I self-published The Patience of a Dead Man, so it's only on Amazon. Um, but um, Hell on High is in, you know, is in more places. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to get books into bookstores too. You know, like if you're not signed by one of the four or five, you know, whatever the number is, the big publishers nowadays, it's hard to get into a Barnes and Noble. So you're not going to probably find me in too many of those. I know I'm in a couple, but I'm trying to work with uh, some independent bookstores and, you know, they're struggling too. You know, it's, it's hard with uh, Amazon, um, the way they run their business and, and uh, kind of like swallowed up a lot of the little guys and it, it made uh, it made publishing easier because you can do everything through Amazon, but it also made it harder in, in many ways. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for making me feel so that that means uh, that I'm missing someplace. So that is a unique word that we have only in Portuguese. That means that I am. Um, I'm missing something, but not like I miss you. It's it's a different context. Yeah, it, it's it's. I think it has a few meanings, right? Like it could it could mean like if you say saudades, a, a saudades pra você. I mean that would be I miss you, right? Like I don't, but or just saudades for your country or for the food or you, you miss it. It's we we need three or four words to say that, and Portuguese has it in one, and it's yeah. a great word. I also like uh, cafune. cafune. Cafune means to play play with your hair, basically. And yeah. for our listeners, don't miss the chance to catch Michael's feature in the June issue of the Relatable Voice magazine. So please visit www.relatable-media.com for your free copy and check out Michael's website and he has many other good things for you to see there. So, Michael, thank you very much. Obrigado. Muito <laughs> yes, thanks so much, Lucia. I enjoyed my time. You are always welcome. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. And remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does.
until next time.